If you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Psalms, the 143rd Psalm is where we're going to look this morning. Psalm 143. Psalm was written by David. And and he talks in the first part of the psalm about the enemy that he has, as he does so often in his psalms. He talks about the enemy and how he's being persecuted. And uh, verse 4, he says, My spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. And, uh, and, then he, and then he says after that, verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. That's a good way to approach it, you know, when things aren't going well. You're having battles and you don't know the answer to the problems that you're facing. A good thing to do is to look back and remember all the things that God has done for you. Uh, if you've been saved for any length of time, you have a wealth of history that details God's goodness in your life. And, and I think sometimes it's important just to sit and think back on those days and to remember the circumstances and what God has done on your behalf in your life to help you with the problems that you faced. But I want you to look at, um, at verse number eight. That's where I want to begin this morning. And, uh, some interesting things that he says here that are a little, in some ways, just a little bit different from some of the other Psalms that he wrote. But look at verse number eight. He says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. And then he says in verse number 10, Teach me to do thy will. For thou art my God, thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Teach me to do thy will. That's kind of an interesting phrase. I've not seen a phrase like that anywhere else in Scripture. But David is asking the Lord to teach him how to do his will. Now, I don't know about you, but I have situations in my life and have had over the years and experiences where I felt like I needed the Lord to teach me how to know or to do His will. I needed the Lord to teach me or to guide me to stay in His will. So the question is, how do we, how how can we be sure that we are in the will of God? Now, that ought to be a primary desire of our hearts. We ought to wake up every day with a longing in our heart that says, Lord, help me to walk in your path today. Help me to know your will. Help me to do your will. I I think it's interesting. We often think about this matter of the will of God, and there's nothing in Scripture that says anything about the Lord teaching us to know his will. He says, teach us to do thy will, not teach us to know your will. Do you know there's not any place, and I, and I I could be, I could be wrong about this, but there's, and, and, and all of my searching and all of my time looking to try to find it, 
I've not been able to find any place in the Word of God where it talks about us searching to know the will of God. Every place where it talks about knowing the will of God, it refers to us as something that God gives us. That it's, it's there. If we're just sensitive to it, we, we can know God's will. So, I want to talk about how to, how to know we're in the will of God today, but I want to, I want to talk first about some general principles regarding the will of God. The first one is this. We do not have, have to find the will of God. The scripture does not say anything about us seeking the will of God. It says to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. It says to set our affection on things above and not on things of this earth. But every time it talks about knowing the will of God, it talks about it as if God is going to give it to us without us having to seek it. Let me give you some examples. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You could quote these verses with me. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a willing yieldedness on our part. We say to the Lord, Lord, I belong to you. This body is yours. Do with me what you see fit. Use me as you desire. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then it says this, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So the, 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 uh, the, the thing that we do to get to that place is we present ourselves to the Lord, we yield ourselves to the Lord, and then we let Him transform our thinking, and as we transform our thinking is transformed, then we know the will of God. That's, that's the way it works. In, uh, in Acts 22 and verse 14, Paul is talking about his conversion. And he says that the angel, the, the, the messenger, told him that the God of our fathers hath chosen you that ye should know the will of God. Paul, God's chosen you so that you can know what he wants you to do. Um, Colossians 1.9, Paul is praying for the believers in, at Colossae, and he says this, For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, have not ceased to pray for you, that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul says, I'm praying for you that you'll know the will of God, and that you'll have spiritual understanding, you'll have wisdom about it. Galatians 4, I'm sorry, Genesis 24 and verse 27. This is an interesting, interesting verse. Um, Abraham has sent a servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And he goes and, and looks and he, and he, and he gets to the the place where he's headed, and, and there he finds Rebecca, and that's the one. And so they're asking him, how did, how did you know? How did you know that this is where you were supposed to come? And you know what he said in response to them? 
He said, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. The Lord, the Lord led me. I was in the way. I was, I was, so in, in essence, what he was saying was I was busy doing the will of God as I knew it, and the Lord led me. The Lord guided him specifically in that situation without him having to find what God wanted him to do. Psalm 27, verse 32, says the steps of a good man are what? Ordered by the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That's a promise, is it not? God will guide our steps if our desire is to know his will and to do his will. My point is, I think we need to be very careful about talking about finding the will of God. We just need to be careful about doing the will of God. And as long as we're doing what God wants us to do, he's going to guide us. We don't have to find the will of God. Second thing is we don't have to fear the will of God. There's no reason for us to be afraid of what God's going to do in our lives. The Bible talks about when we go through the fire, that he's going to be be there with us. If we go through the flood, he's going to be there with us. God's going to be there with us. The Bible says when he puts forth his sheep, he goes before them. He prepares the way for us. And he's always going to be there to help us, no matter what we go through. And if we're in the center of his will, then that's going to be the best place for us. We're far far better off in the middle of an intense war with bullets flying all around us in the center of God's will than we are being in the most fortified building by ourselves if we're not in God's will. God's will is the safest place to be. We don't need to fear being in God's will. We don't need to fear the will of God. Number three, we don't need to fuel the will of God. What I mean by that is we don't need to empower the will of God. Sometimes we talk about things that need to be done. And, uh, and, and, it, and it happens mostly in businesses, but it happens occasionally in churches. Pastor will have a staff meeting, and, uh, and they'll talk about something that might need to be done. And somebody will say, well... This is, this is how we can get that done. And the pastor may say, okay, you take care of it. In the business world, they would say, okay, make it happen. It's not our responsibility to make God's will happen. I don't have to empower God's will. If I'm in the center of God's will, and I'm yielded to God's will, then God will empower it himself. I'm just a tool that he uses. I need to be where God wants me to be, doing what God wants me to do. And as I'm doing that, then God will take care of making sure what's supposed to happen happens. So we're not to, we don't have to find God's will. We don't have to fear God's will. We don't have to, to fuel God's will. God's not trying to hide his will from us, is he? No, God's not, God's not, okay, you know, when, uh, the grandkids that were here, Last week that I baptized it, they were a little smaller at this this point what I'm talking about now, but and and our oldest son's grandkids did the same thing. But uh we have two we had a uh a little green uh stuffed bird, a little old bitty stuffed bird. It's got a long tail with an orange feathers on the end of it, you know. And, uh, and then the other one is a Snoopy, Snoopy, stuffed Snoopy thing. 
And uh, when it come time to go to bed, they didn't always want to go to bed. So we started doing something. Before they go to bed, we would hide the speckled bird and hide the Snoopy. And they would go in the bedroom and we'd hide it somewhere in the living room. And then they'd come back out and they'd look and, and, uh, and, and, and everything could be completely hidden except there had to be some little something that was sticking out. So for example, with the, the speckled, and our, our one grandson called it the speckled boy. And so he'd want to know where the speckled boy was. But anyway, uh, so we'd, we'd hide it behind a cushion and the tail, that little orange of the, of the tail would be peeking out. And they'd be looking all around and they're so excited and they're looking around. And, uh, am, am I, am I getting close? Am I getting close? Well, you're warm. You're warm. Oh, uh, no, now you're getting cold. You're, you're way, you know, no, no, now you're, and, 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 and we would kind of guide them that way. And they'd get excited about it and then they'd find the birds, the bird in the Snoopy and then they'd go to bed. And they were happy because they found Snoopy and the bird. But you know, God doesn't do that. God doesn't doesn't put His will in 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 a in a behind a cushion somewhere and then say, "Well, you're getting warm, you're getting closer. Oh, you're hot. Oh, now now you're cold." God doesn't do that. He's not trying to hide it from us. He wants us to know His will, and He will let us know if we're yielded to Him. We do not have to find the will of God. We do not have to fear the will of God. We do not have to fuel the will of God. Now, I want to give you three examples from Scripture of where these principles play out in the lives of specific people or groups of people. Turn to Exodus chapter 14 to begin with. Exodus chapter 14. And this is the children of Israel. Joseph took them into Egypt to preserve them. God sent Joseph ahead so that he could preserve the people of Israel. And so they lived in Egypt for years. And then, and then uh, another Pharaoh came up. And he didn't know who Joseph, Joseph was. And, he, and, and, and so the Israelites were dealing with bondage, overwhelming bondage. They were... They were servants to the Egyptians. And they were crying out to God. So God sent Moses to lead them out of bondage. And uh, through the series of plagues, you know the story, what happened back and forth. And finally Pharaoh said, go, take your, take your people and take your animals and go. Just get out of here. And uh, so they left. And they were excited about that. But then, then the Bible says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and changed his mind and said, go after him. And so Pharaoh said, why did we let them go? We don't need to let them go. Let's go get them. And so Israel was was fleeing. The, the Egyptian army was behind them. And, uh, and the Lord, the Lord, listen to this carefully, the Lord in his will led them to the edge of the Red Sea in a place where there were mountains on either side. God put them there. That was not their choosing. It was not, they didn't just randomly happen there. God put them there. And they're, they're in this situation. The Red Sea's in front of them. The mountains on either side. And the Egyptian army is behind them. 
And look at verse number 10 of Exodus 14. The Bible says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die than that we should die in the wilderness? Moses is a great leader, and he was a great leader. God used him in a magnificent way in the lives of the children of Israel. But verse 13, the Bible says, Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. It's good, it's good advice, wasn't it? Lord, Lord's going to take care of this. Don't fear the Egyptians. Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Bible says in verse number 15, The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Now, Israel, I'm sure, was wanting an answer to their prayer as to what they were going to do. But I can promise you there was not a single one of them that thought going forward was a good, good answer. In front of them is the Red Sea. It's very deep. It's not two inches deep like, you know, that, that one always has baffled me. People, you know, that say they believe the Bible was the Reed Sea. It was only two inches deep. Okay, well, they went through and got through the other side. But then they got another problem. They've got to try to explain how the entire Egyptian army drowned in two inches of water. It was not two inches. It was, it was, it was deep. And they get the, the command from, from Moses, move forward. What do you mean move forward? That's the, the, the Reed Sea. How are we going to do that? Can you imagine the discussions that must have gone on? How are we going to get across? We don't have any boats. There's not a barge here we can get on to get, get across the, the sea. How are we going to do this? And Moses said, God said to move forward. Held up his, held up his, his, uh, his staff. Notice what it says. Verse 21, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. That's good, but let's, let's read the next part. Verse number 22, And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand, and on their left. So think about that. Okay, Lord said, go forward. That doesn't sound like a very good idea, but okay, all right. Moses lifts up his hand, the wind comes, the sea is... And so, I'm, I'm putting myself into, the, into the, the, the scene there as one of the children of Israel. And I'm standing on the bank of the Red Sea, and I see Moses' hand go up, and I see the waters part. And I see on this side a wall of water being held back. 
And on this side, a wall of water being held back. And I hear Moses saying, all right, let's go. Now, I don't know how far it was across the Red Sea, but it was, it was more than a couple steps. It took them a little while to get across. And I can tell you what my mind would be saying. I would look at it and I would say, what happens if we get out there in the middle and whatever's holding those water, that water back, let's go. Would, would, uh, let me ask you this. The Bible says they were afraid of the Egyptians behind. They would be afraid to go across, but now you got the wall. Would that, would that alleviate your fear? Just that the wall is, is up there? I don't know about you, but I would have a little apprehension. I would be looking at that water and thinking, what's going to happen if, you know, what the, the wind's blowing really hard right now and the water's standing up. What if the wind stops blowing? They had to make a choice. They were confronted with an impossible challenge. Cross the Red Sea without boats. They couldn't do it while the water was there. Now the water's gone and you can cross. But they had to conquer their fear. All kinds of things go through their mind as they look at that water and wonder, what if we get in the middle and it collapses? Not a good thing. But they conquered their fear to move forward. Later, they got past the Red Sea, they went to the other side, and then the Lord said, all right, it's time to go in the Promised Land. You remember what happened there? God said, it's time to go in. Twelve came back, but ten of them said, we're grasshoppers in their sight, can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said, God will give us the victory. The people decided not to go. One of the little known, we, we don't think about this very often, but if you read on over, you find out that there came a time after this time had passed where they didn't go in, that they come back to Moses and said, Hey, Moses, we're ready to go now. And you remember what Moses said? Moses said, It's too late. You didn't believe when the opportunity came, and, it's, and, it, was, and it was too late. They, and they waited 40 years, and those, that group died off, and the, the other group ended up going in. Let me give you a second illustration besides the people of Israel. Turn, if you would, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. These are all very familiar stories. You, you, you know the stories well. Verse 1 of chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shokah, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shokah and Azekah in Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. Verse number four. And there went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Skip, skip down to verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Verse number 12. 
Now David was the son of that Epaphrite, Epaph, Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. David was the youngest, it says in verse 14, and, uh, and David, verse 15, he went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Verse 17, Jesse said to David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to the brethren, thy brethren. Carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of a thousand, and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. So David is an errand boy. His father sends him to take some food to the army and to see about his brothers who were fighting in the battle or who were gathered on the mountainside waiting to fight in the battle. And while he's there, verse number 23 as he, that is David, talked with him, behold, there came up the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. David heard what this Philistine said. And he, and he saw that nobody, nobody was doing anything about it. He, so he, so he speaks to his, the, the man and says, Verse 26, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall be done, it be done to the man that killeth him. But Eliab, who is his oldest brother, he's not happy with David's, David's conversation here, what he has to say. Verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And David was facing an irresistible cause. He couldn't back down on this. He knew God and he loved God and he was concerned that this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, was defying the army of God. This shouldn't be happening. I mean, these, this, this army, the army of Israel, they're marching in the name of their God. Do they not have enough confidence in God that he could take care of this situation? Are they just letting their fear determine what they do? So he said, "There is there is there not a cause? You know the rest of the story. He went and, and, and King Saul called him in. And uh, verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David said unto Saul, verse 734, because Saul, Saul, you know, protests. David said, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. There came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after them and after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Now here's the key, verse 37. And David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. 
And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. You know what happened from there. David tried on Saul's armor and didn't fit and wouldn't work. And so he took his, his sling and five smooth stones in a pouch and went out to meet the, the giant. The giant ridiculed him, made fun of him. And David, David, uh, uh, verse number 45, David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of, the, of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. David was facing an irresistible cause. He couldn't back down. But he still had to make a choice to move forward. And he had to determine, now I, don't, I don't think he thought very much about it, but I think he had to determine whether or not it was God's will for him to go forward. If it wasn't God's will for him to go forward, he was going to be in a world of hurt. But David knew that he was fighting for a just cause. He was defending the honor of his God. And it was a cause that he could not resist. And he moved forward in spite of his fear. He didn't take time to think about what was going to happen. He didn't look at it and say, well, you know, I know I did slay that bear and I did slay the lion, but I'm not sure about this. I mean, this is a whole different ballgame. I mean, this guy's big. He's got a sword. He's way bigger than I am. I've got this sling and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty good with the sling, but what if I miss? None of that. None of that took place. David said, the cause is just. My God is real. He will fight for me and I'm trusting Him and I'm going to fight this Philistine. There's a third illustration I want you to look at. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And there are in Daniel chapter 3 Three Hebrew children who were facing an intolerable command. You know what happened? The king erected this giant statue. And he said, at any time when the music plays, then everybody has to bow down and worship my statue. And those three Hebrew children said, we're not going to worship your statue. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to do it. Because our allegiance belongs to our God. And so we'll pick the story up at verse 14. The Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Verse 15, Now if you be ready, what, that at what time... You hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music. You shall fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? It's a good question to ask. And do you know that the three Hebrew children have the answer? The Bible says, 
In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know what they were saying? We don't need a long time to talk about this or think about it. We know. We know what our answer is going to be. Verse number 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So it doesn't matter about your command. We're not going to bow down. We're going to stay true to our God. Was it God's will for the children of Israel to do that? Absolutely. The thing I want to point out is they didn't have to spend much time thinking about it. Because they didn't have to seek to find the will of God. They knew it because they were obeying principles that are found in the Word of God regarding knowing and doing the will of God. Now, there are three things, three things that I want to point out this morning that are necessary for us to make sure that we're in the center of God's will, that we're doing what God wants us to do. Three essentials for doing the work of doing the will of God. And none of them have anything to do with us trying to analyze it ourselves. Number one is conviction. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie this to something we've talked about in the past because I think it's important. The Bible says we're supposed to seek the Lord with all of our hearts. The, the thing that we seek is not the will of God. We seek the God who knows His will and who knows His will for us. We seek Him with our whole heart. Heart has three parts. Remember the, the intellect, feelings, and the will. Intellect is what you know. Feelings is what you feel. Or emotions is what you feel. And the will is what you do. Step number one is conviction. That's based on what you know. Now, what did the Hebrew children know? What does it say they knew? Look at verse number 17. If it be so, in other words, if you do choose to cast us into that burning fiery furnace, if that should happen, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. That's what they knew. Let me ask you a question. What do you know about your God? You know that He's sovereign, right? You know that He loves us, correct? We know that, that, that He is powerful enough to take care of us, even if we're in the middle of the Red Sea, even if we're facing a, a giant who's three times our size even if we are being cast into a burning, fiery furnace, that conviction, that knowledge, what we know about our God is a principle that ought to drive us as we determine God's will. We know that He knows what's best for us, correct? He knows what's best for me. And if I'm willing to trust Him, He will help me to stay in the place where he is going to be able 
to do what's best for, for me. We'll get to that a little more in depth in a moment. Conviction. That's the first thing. It's necessary. What you know. Number two, emotions, what you feel. That's confidence. Conviction and confidence are two different things. I can stand here all day and say, you know what? I look at that chair and I can see that chair and I have examined it very carefully. Don't have to really examine it. I know it because out of experience, I've sat on it before. If I sit down on that chair, I'm not going to end up on the floor. I know that's true because I, I know my God. I know if I trust in Him, He's going to take care of me according to His will. Conviction is I know it. Confidence is I'm willing to trust it. It's taking the step. The children of Israel stood on the bank of the Red Sea. And they saw the water part. I know that the God who parted that water can keep it back. He can make sure it doesn't come and swallow us if we, if we go across it. That's conviction. Confidence is let's go. Get out in the middle of it. Don't worry about it. God's going to do it. Conviction is necessary. Confidence is necessary. That's faith. That's trusting God to do what He said He'd do. And then there's a third thing. And that's what you do. And that's courage. That's a willingness to move forward. That's what the children of Israel had to do when they were standing on the bank of the Red Sea. That's what that's what David had to do when he went down the mountain and said, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to let you continue doing what you're doing. By the way, David, the, the Bible says that he, he, he hit him in the, in the forehead with the stone and Goliath fell to the ground. And then David, what did David do? He went up and he didn't have a sword, so he picked up Goliath's sword. That must have been quite a, a feat to pick it up. But he picked it up and cut off Goliath's head and that's when he died, the Bible says. So Goliath officially died when David took the sword and cut off Goliath's head. But the truth is, Goliath was a dead man the moment David said, the Lord will fight for me and committed to going into battle. The three Hebrew children, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us. That's conviction. Look at the second statement. He will deliver us out of thy hand. That's confidence. And then the third thing, the third thing that he said, but if not, be it known, O king, We will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou, which thou set up. What is that? That's the courage. Conviction, confidence, and courage. By the way, there's a fourth, a fourth thing that we don't have anything to do with. That's what God does when we demonstrate those things. The conviction, the confidence, and the courage. Look at verse Number 21, then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, 
and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king commanded commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The men who cast them into the, the furnace were killed because the furnace was so hot. Verse 23, these, shed men, three, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. Here it is, verse 25. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, not bound anymore, four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. That's confirmation. God taking care of His children who are doing His will. We can trust Him. We know who He is. We know His power. We know His concern for us. He knows His love for us. We can have confidence in that and we can move forward with courage, doing His will, knowing that He's going to send a confirmation if we're in the center of His will. One other verse, two verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Very interesting. Trust in the Lord with all that heart. That's the key. Next phrase says what? Lean not on thine own understanding. You know what? I get in trouble when I try to figure out what God's doing in my life. Because I'm analyzing it from my perspective. I'm seeing things from, from, from my viewpoint, which is clouded, which is, is, is complicated by my sin and my selfishness and my personal desires. It's, it's hindered by the fact that I'm using my own wisdom. That's never a good thing. Lean not on thine own understanding. Man's understanding is often wrong. In fact, almost always wrong because we can't, we don't see it from God's perspective. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. Seek him with your whole heart. Don't worry about finding the will of God. Seek the one who holds our lives in his hands. Seek him and yield ourselves to him. And the Bible says the result will be what? He, what's the next word? Shall, he shall direct thy paths. That's the promise. Either it's true or it's not. Either we can trust him or we don't have to. But the only way to get to the place where we have the confirmation is to trust Him. In two weeks, I think it is, uh, well, two weeks from now, we'll mark 20 years ago that Trinity Baptist Church voted for me to come as pastor of the church. When we, when we came down here, we left, both of us working, and uh, the church, the church was at that time had 11 voting members, 
Somebody said, well, it's not a whole lot bigger than that now. Well, it, it's not a whole lot. It is bigger than that. There's more than that here now. But 20 years have passed, and a lot of things have been done, and God's been very gracious and very good to our church. And uh, some wonderful things have happened. But, uh, but 11 voting members, offerings less than about $600 a week, and... Uh, and we were, I left my full-time ministry up there. My wife was teaching in that ministry as well. And we came down here and came by faith. Now, my thinking got twisted every time. I mean, we, we agreed to come. And then for three months, we were back and forth every other weekend. And we would come down here, and I would preach on Sunday, and I'd ask the treasurer at the end of the day, how much was the offering? He'd tell me, and we'd get back in the car on Monday morning and go back up there, and I would say to my wife, what have we done? How are we going to manage? How are things going to work? And the Lord said, don't worry about that. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Don't worry about that. Just trust me. I know what's going on. You know what? 20 years later, our numbers are not a whole lot better than they were when I came. They are, they are some better. Very grateful for that. But 20 years, God is taking care of us. And God is taking care of this ministry. Without us having a huge amount of money in the bank, going from week to week, you talk to our treasurer, and there sometimes we, we, we had weeks where we had $200 in the bank at the end of after we paid all our bills. But you know what? All of our bills were paid and God took care of us. And somehow in the midst of all that, we built this building and, and the Lord has saved a number of people and there are people in heaven, many people in heaven that got saved in our ministry because they got saved later in life. That's all part of what God did here with a small group of people who didn't have a lot but who were willing to trust Him. The Bible says that we have to walk by faith. One of the defining characteristics of faith is you trust when you can't see. You trust when you don't know. You trust when, when, you, when you look at it and there's, there's not enough money there. You trust and you move forward and you go doing what God wants you to do and God will confirm that faith down the road if you're willing to trust it. That's important. So here's the, here's the point I want to make. Doing the will of God doesn't occur because we search for it and then decide whether we're going to do it or not. Doing the will of God occurs as we walk by faith. I being in the way, God led me. That's it. That's, a, that's an underwriting principle of doing the will of God. And that's, that's the key. Conviction, confirmation, courage. Just get busy. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. Seek Him first. And He shall direct thy path. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. 
It's all about trusting Him. It's not, it's not all about knowing. It's all about trust. Because there are lots of times when you have to just go even though you don't know. That's the Bible principle. It's what happened with Israel when they went through the Red Sea. It's what happened with David when he sought to, to kill Goliath. It's what happened with the three Hebrew, fire, Hebrew children when they were pushed into the burning fiery furnace. They were all walking by faith, even though they couldn't see what was ahead. The one time Israel didn't, they got left in the wilderness for 40 years. Walking by faith, that's the key to doing the will of God. Let's stand together with heads by eyes closed.